Welcome to The Oracle, a podcast for wild feminine wisdom channeled from the deep. I'm your host, Miriam Ropschitz, creatrix of Moonbody. I'm a guide for women sharing body-based teachings on the feminine. The Oracle brings you podcasts on womb wisdom, sacred sexuality, embodiment, and the women's mysteries. My prayer is that these conversations with my coven enrich, ignite, and inspire your relationship to the sacred feminine for a life of magic, pleasure, and power. Hello everybody, this is Miriam, and welcome to the Oracle Podcast. It's just me for this episode, and of course, my (laughs) co-host, Goddess Aphrodite, who is inspiring everything that's going to be spoken of in this episode. So make sure you're comfortable, grab a cup of tea or something tasty to drink, Get cozy. Maybe you'll even want a journal. Maybe you just want to listen. And we're going to speak, or I'm going to speak, all about rewilding goddess Aphrodite. This is part of a new body of work of mine. And it's around re-fanging the goddess of love, giving her her fangs back. It's all about reclaiming the lost or, you know, deliberately obfuscated dark feminine aspects of one of the world's most beloved, most renowned goddesses. My journey with Aphrodite is fairly recent. As a goddess, she never really spoke to me that much. And if you've seen my work, if you're at all familiar with me, that might not surprise you that much. Although maybe it will. I often had people saying to me, oh, you know, you do this work with the erotic and sexuality and, you know, do you work with goddess Aphrodite? I kind of like wrinkle my nose a bit. I was like, nah. And she never, ever called to me. That is until a little over a year ago. I have always been more called to the dark feminine aspects of feminine archetypes. That's just, that's just my jam. And I think the reason why is because I grew up in a world that was so absent of them and my desire for them comes from a deep hunger to to know them and to experience them or her and to also repopulate the world with, with her, bring her back to her rightful place. I was always more drawn to these dark feminine archetypes, these darker goddesses, even as a quite a young girl when I used to watch Disney films and I was very, very 
into my Disney films. I loved fairy tales. And again, I liked the, you know, the, the parts of the Disney that you could see were um, where the Hans Christian Andersen aspects of those stories were still intact. So most of these famous fairy tales come from these quite dark origins of Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm, for example. And as a kid, I was given these books, Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen, and had access to the original stories. And I remember after having watched The Little Mermaid, I then read, I'm not sure if it's Hans Christian Andersen or Brothers Grimm, but their, their version of The Little Mermaid, I think it's called like The Little Sea Maid or something. And whoa, <laughs> I was really young. And I remember just thinking, being hypnotized by this magical, really quite dark tale. Uh, even the artwork from it, they had these beautiful illustrations and they managed to really capture and convey this kind of underwater, raw, wild, dark, magical place. Needless to say, the original story is very different to The Little Mermaid, which I think is one of the more playful of the Disney films. Um, although I remember hearing an interview with Meghan Markle recently where she said that during the time where she felt most silenced by the British royal family, um, she was at home by herself and she watched The Little Mermaid and she realized the parallels between her and Ariel um, in the not feeling able to speak or having her voice taken. And so there is that aspect of the modern day Little Mermaid that is, and there are some, there are some very um, troublesome things around, you know, gender roles and the dynamics between Ariel and her man and a lot of rescuing and kind of uh, fawning behavior that's, you know, it's the kind of things that if I have daughters, I, I will not be guiding them towards watching The Little Mermaid. But anyway, let me get back on to the topic. <laughs> I was always drawn to the witches in these stories as a little kid. And as an adult now, I understand why that is, because there is something real about the dark feminine. For me, she is the ultimate receptacle of mystery and magic. And where the wild feminine really lives. And a lot of my work is around bringing these repressed and deliberately hidden aspects of the feminine back into full view or at least fuller view. And that's what this new offering, Temple Aphrodite, is all about. It's about excavating these dark feminine aspects of the erotic and integrating them with the more acceptable or socially acceptable aspects of Eros that we understand to be, you know, kind of mainstream erotics. 
So this is one of the, the key pillars of Temple of Aphrodite, my new upcoming course, which starts on May 16th and is currently available to join at half price right up until the 3rd of May. I'll tell you more about that at the end of this episode. But there's a story around Temple of Aphrodite. There's a wider spell that I am intentionally casting with this piece of work. And that is, as this episode title tells you in rewilding Aphrodite or doing my part (laughs) to do that. And I want to be clear and just say that I'm not the first person who has thought that this will be a valid pursuit. Um, Bethany Hughes, who is a wonderful historian, has done a lot on this subject already. And a lot of the notes, a lot of the more historical notes that I'm speaking to in this episode come from Bethany Hughes' book on Venus and Aphrodite. And just in case anyone listening isn't clear, Venus is the Roman version of Aphrodite, the Romanized version. So other wiser, elder people before me have also noticed something that I noticed recently, and that is that the Aphrodite we know today is not who she really is, is not the true current of wisdom of that goddess. And that there has been a deliberate defanging, deliberate hiding and suppression of Aphrodite's dark feminine core. Because those aspects are something so, so powerful that they hold the potential to really start to unwind so much of the dominator consciousness that has got this world where it is now. I believe that the dark feminine is is the medicine for this strange world we find ourselves in. And therefore, for those who stand to win or benefit from things staying as they are, the dark feminine to them is, you know, an enemy. She's dangerous and she must be suppressed and hidden. So I said my journey with Aphrodite has been fairly recent and it started last year, at the beginning of the year, when I was living in Portugal by the ocean, in southern Portugal. And every day I would go for a walk on this really long stretch of beach. And the beaches were always covered in shells, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scallop shells. And I'd never really had access to hundreds and hundreds of scallop shells. I'd seen, you know, one or two sometimes on the beach, but obviously this is a place where there are a lot of scallops (laughs) and there were just hundreds. And I would just go and kind of play with them, I guess. I would go and 
take one or two home and you know use them for my altar or use particularly nice ones to put my jewelry in and I just became really transfixed with the symbolism of these shells and I remember seeing live scallops somewhere in the market and realizing wow that is looking quite a lot like a pussy and we know that with various kind of sea dwelling creatures various sea flora and fauna there's often this very pussy like Mm, arrangement of 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 creatures under the sea right and of course above sea but there's something particularly wet and juicy and soft about a lot of these shellfish and sea fauna and flora and then later on I was reading a book and I read how the scallop shell was this really key symbol of Aphrodite and how you know, the the fact that the scallop does resemble a pussy was really central to the reason behind this. And this is why in um, The Birth of Venus, that famous Botticelli painting, she is emerging from this huge scallop shell. So this was the first time very organically the goddess had kind of entered my consciousness in a way where my curiosity was genuinely piqued. I thought, hmm. And I started to get this sense of another kind of Aphrodite that was completely different from anything I'd seen in mainstream culture. It was something that was very, very ancient and very much a goddess of the dark feminine. So as she started to call to me and I started to read more about her and seek out information about her, I realized what was happening here. And for me to tell you, I want to just ask you to close your eyes for a moment and to visualize Aphrodite. When you close your eyes and you visualize Goddess Aphrodite, who do you see? Who do you see? Now, many of us, when we do this, are going to see a youngish woman with porcelain skin and long blonde or strawberry blonde flowing tresses standing modestly covering her breasts and her pussy with strands of her long hair with her shoulders slightly rolled in in that kind of defensive posture we do when we're naked and we don't wish to be seen a posture of shame, posture of bodily shame, of hiding our nudity. So if you didn't see that, I would be very interested to know what you do see. Do let me know somehow. 
find a way, tell me. <laughs> but many of us are going to be seeing this vision of Aphrodite that comes from Renaissance art, like Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. And there are some other very, very famous renditions of Aphrodite where she is very beautiful and very passive and, you know, she's objectified. And this is a goddess of sexual love, let's not forget. So to understand how far this version of Aphrodite is a departure from her dark feminine origins, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and learn about where she came from. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the warrior goddesses that were her ancestors. So Cyprus, where Aphrodite was born, is right opposite the Fertile Crescent, where lots of Greco-Roman culture originates. So in the Fertile Crescent, this is where we have our three key warrior goddesses, Inanna, Ishtar, and Astarte. And so Inanna is the Sumerian deity and Ishtar is the Semitic deity. And they are two different goddesses who over time kind of blended together and became known as Astarte. And these goddesses are very, very interesting. They are young, they are maidens, they are unmarried. They are goddesses of duality. So they are goddesses of war and goddesses of love. The goddesses of death and the goddesses of fertility. The goddesses of heaven, the goddesses of earth. There's this real dualism that is deeply built into them in a way that you don't really blink an eye about. So Inanna is also often represented as this part bird, part woman. So she's often seen with a bird's head and bird claw feet. And there's this real blending of her as a creature of the day and a creature of the night. And this is something that we later see in statues of Aphrodite where she's depicted with a bird's head and bird's feet, for example, sometimes in her, her older representations, so pre-Roman. And she's also come to be known through her symbol of the dove. So this perhaps is um, a continuation of, of the association with her and birds. And birds in general have been interwoven with goddesses and feminine archetypes in many, many different cultures. 
So these three warrior goddesses traveled from the Fertile Crescent to Cyprus. And when they reached Cyprus, they were cooked up in a cauldron with these other, this other ancient deity that was already being worshipped in Cyprus and was like a fertility mother earth goddess with a very pronounced sexual charge. So this is already like clearly mm, the basis of who Aphrodite became. It's said that this earlier version of her had an exaggerated feminine sexuality and a deeply ferocious quality. So just thinking of those two things, this kind of like provocative sexuality and then the ferocious quality of the warrior goddess. Now, this is not who we are seeing in the Venus de Milo statue or the birth of Venus by Botticelli at all. This is such a huge departure. So when the mainland Greeks started to come to Cyprus around the 12th century BC, the island became really a key point in the intercontinental exchange of goods. And the Greeks started to take this goddess that was this merging of warrior goddesses and this own, their own Cypriot deity, and they called her Aphrodite. And she was known as the goddess of love and laughter and smiles. And she was associated with adornment. She was always depicted in beautiful clothes and was known to work with ambrosial oil. Where the Greeks worshipped her, she was known simply as the goddess. So she was really the key goddess here. And then she was kind of transposed onto her some other qualities, qualities of beauty and desire and love and fertility. Fertility had always been there, but the desire and the beauty and the love came a little bit later. Her fertility was in all senses of the word. It was a total fecundity. It was fertility for women and, and you know, the bringing of life, fertility for men, fertility of nature, of the land, of life itself. So she has this incredibly vast erotic charge. And sometimes she was depicted in less than expected ways. There are statues of Aphrodite where she has a woman's body and a full beard. So there is this kind of androgyny in this early Aphrodite as well that I believe is, is simply pointing to the same kind of duality as the three warrior goddesses, that life and death, male, female, it's all part of the same holy game of life. There are also some statues of her where she has 
a rather nice cock and balls. And there are a couple of great statues with her where she is a woman lifting her dress to reveal her cock. Um, something very, very powerful about that. So there's, again, this is to me a, a dark feminine goddess that we're looking at here. This is somebody who is, who is playing with playing with the edge, playing at the edge, playing between the binaries. And there is a mischievous, playful quality there that to me is, is reminiscent of some of the goddesses in the Indian pantheon, like, like goddess Kali, for example. There is this mischievous, playful element to her. While, you know, she will cut your head off, but there is mischief in it as well. There's this great documentary that I highly recommend anybody interested in knowing more about this to watch uh, with Bethany Hughes. And in it, she shows us a huge piece of volcanic rock in Greece. Um, but it's not that big. It's, it's a big lump of rock and it's dark black, it's volcanic rock. And this rock was once worshiped as goddess Aphrodite. Her devotees oiled it and decorated it with flowers. And there is something quite uncanny about this rock, or in general, just so primal, primordial, I guess, about the idea of worshipping this rock, this rock that is a goddess. And the Roman author Tacitus actually is quoted as saying that the worship of the goddess as a rock was otherworldly and obscure in a kind of um, frowning way saying it was very strange looking down on the Greeks and their the island the islander Greeks and their worshipping habits but there's something in that rock or in the worship of that rock that I feel is just really central to this the core of who this goddess actually is. She is this primordial, otherworldly, primal figure. She's not the prim and proper lady on the shiz, who is, you know, <laughs> kind of just gazing doe-eyed towards the man who was painting her. And I really think the more we can resurrect these visions of Aphrodite, like this rock, the more that we start to kind of chip away at what was being built in this representation of her in this modern sense, because I don't believe that this modern, what can we learn from Aphrodite in The Birth of Venus? What does she have to offer modern women? What is her story? Perhaps I'm missing something but I don't believe that she has anything to offer anybody except a pretty face. And that is a very key part of this as well. So we'll come back to that, the importance of her pretty face in a little while. Another interesting thing about Aphrodite in terms of my theory that she was originally a dark goddess is 
her epithets. So she had hundreds of epithets. Um, and some of the most interesting ones that I found that support this theory were that she was often known as Aphrodite Milanis. So that can be translated to of the night or of the dark or of the dark night. You know, you don't get light fluffy goddesses who are known as Aphrodite of the dark night. That is saying something about who this particular goddess really was. Perhaps though my favourite epithet that I came across was Aphrodite Philomedes. Now the story of Aphrodite's birth is central to this epithet because Philomedes means lover of male genitalia and Aphrodite's origin story is that she was born from the foam around the severed cock of her grandfather which was severed and thrown into the sea. So Aphrodite, Aphros meaning foam, deity born of, so Aphrodite is foam born and the idea that she's called Aphrodite Philomedes, lover of male genitalia, again this is a goddess who's dwelling on the edge. She's a goddess who is associated with cock. Cock worship, loving cock. Um, <laughs> this is not the Aphrodite I know from Renaissance artwork. We've come to know her as the goddess of love. And I think it's more accurate to say that she's the goddess of sexual love, which is something quite different. It's love with the erotic aspect of love brought to the forefront. And we often think of her as this kind of light, fluffy goddess, goddess of love and doves and seashells. Um, if you look at her on Pinterest, you'll see that there's a whole aesthetic, Aphrodite aesthetic. Everything is like pearlescent and pink and soft and gentle and light. And the ancient Greeks knew her very differently. For her, she was a goddess of immense power and she could be extremely chaotic. She had a power that pulsated through the natural world, creating and destroying. Again, this duality. She was the goddess that spread love and passion and she was also the goddess who was mischievous and she sometimes destroyed people's lives through her mischief. There's a story about the hero Kinaras whose daughter did something to offend Aphrodite and was punished by making the daughter fall in love with her father. And they then had sex and 
Upon realizing the father was so distraught, he was about to kill his daughter until the goddess turned her into a tree. And this is just one tale of the way that Aphrodite um, cast her magic onto these poor unsuspecting people and forced them into these quite perverse infatuations. So she was known to the Greeks as being potentially dangerous. Her love could be maddening and cause complete loss of control. She could be a homewrecker. And within this, we find a little seed, a seed that seems to have germinated into the Roman era as something quite different. So this idea of her duality and, you know, like most um, earth or fertility goddesses, like the warrior goddesses, there is this duality at their heart. Think of Kali, for example, she's the creator and the destroyer. So in this sense, the destruction is neutral. It is not bad. It is nature. It is this dark feminine aspect of reality, which is chaotic the same way that a storm is chaotic. It doesn't blow to harm. It blows because it blows. And yet the Romans seem to have taken this quality, this chaotic quality, and made it mean something a little bit different. And what that is, is that, that women are dangerous, especially beautiful women, especially desirable women, and that desiring women and loving women was a, a curse of some kind which weakened men. And I believe this is really key to the way that Aphrodite has been reduced to a mere beauty. It comes from this fear of female beauty and female desire and female power, that magnetic siren-esque quality of the feminine that could also distract you from your duty of building your empire and, you know, in the modern day, trading your Bitcoin. <laughs> and perhaps this is why beauty became this defining aspect of the goddess. And I mean beauty in, in a sense of the male gaze of beauty. The first full-sized statue of a woman in Greece was of Aphrodite in Kinos. And there's a famous story of men going to have sex with this statue. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking how uncomfortable that must have been. Um, 
So around this time when this is happening, we have to remember what's happening for actual women in Greece. Women were very much second-class citizens at this time. Women in Greece were kept indoors during daylight hours, you know, for their safety, but also because they were a form of property. They were property of their fathers and their husbands, and it was improper for them to be roaming free. They were also fed half rations. Um, they had very little agency. So at the same time that we're seeing this full-sized statue of a woman that is driving men to, to copulate with it, the actual women are really experiencing patriarchy. And when we look at this statue today, it's cold and all we can really see is this cold beauty. And perhaps that's also what we see in these more recent, well, they're still rather old, <laughs> the birth of Venus and later artworks, this cold beauty, detached. A beauty that is safely controllable by the male gaze or the man that is animating it with his paintbrush or his sculpting chisel. So this is one of the ways that you can neuter the dark feminine is to contort those wild feminine, raw aspects into something that is manageable and neat and fitting the very narrow criteria of beauty under the patriarchal gaze. I have no doubt that the originally complex version of Aphrodite would have been somebody that Botticelli would have wanted to paint or that would have become this poster girl for love and beauty and sensuality because these lesser celebrated aspects of the feminine are incredibly challenging to a lot of the beliefs that we hold as modern people around what is the feminine, who is the feminine, and what is actual femininity. Not this kind of ladylike femininity that is a bizarre construct designed to control women and reduce them to this neat little box of stereotypes. The trouble is that the dark feminine always finds her way back. 
So the questions I have are, how can we rewild Aphrodite? How can we bring these attributes back to the goddess as an act of devotion to her, as an act of worship to this goddess of sexual love? How can we worship her as who she really was meant to be at her core? The reality of her is something wild and dark and exciting and this is a huge huge catalyst for this new piece of work that I'm offering. Temple of Aphrodite is a five-week online course for women where we are integrating the light and dark feminine erotic and learning sacred sexual practices such as the jade egg and various forms of yoni care, yoni work, dearmoring, massage, reflexology, all these things that can really support us to be in deeper connection with this very deep and vital part of ourselves for more health and happiness and joy and, and vitality and freedom and all of these life-affirming things that most of us keenly desire. Aphrodite is the energy that is leading this course so there are going to be many reflections upon her, upon her origins, the original goddess, the goddess with her fangs. She's going to be presiding energetically over this offering throughout these five weeks. Each week of Temple of Aphrodite we work with a different feminine erotic archetype. In week one we work with the lover, in week two we work with the whore, Week three is a rest week. In week four, we work with the siren. In week five, we work with the priestess. And there's a lot more information about the practices and the other methods that we're using in Temple of Aphrodite on my website. So if you do feel called to join this new offering, especially if you'd like to join at 50% off, then you need to sign up before the 3rd of May. And you can do that by visiting my website, moon-body.com, or you can head to my Instagram at moon underscore body and go to the link there. And I'd love to hear how you are feeling about Goddess Aphrodite and what kind of reflections you have on your own experience with the goddess so do come and let me know over on instagram about anything that you would like to bring to this conversation as i love to hear from you i hope you've enjoyed this episode we'll be back soon with more amazing guests we have some really really powerful interviews coming through soon on the oracle podcast with some very special women. So do come back for those. Wishing you a beautiful rest of your day.
Much love.